I'd like to uh, invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as we make our way uh, through this letter that the Apostle Paul penned in the mid-50s A.D., we come to chapter 9, and I'd like to begin reading there in verse 1 down to verse 19. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service Give their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For although I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, in this, week, uh, this week, our nation will celebrate the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. 
And in that document, we read of certain unalienable rights that we as creatures have, namely the, the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, what was originally conceived by our founding fathers as perhaps the right to be free from the tyranny of the crown of England or the freedom of taxation without representation or perhaps the freedom to be able to purchase and own land, at least for white males, uh, what was originally conceived as rights in, in the 1700s has been radically changed over the course of time so that today those lists of inalienable rights that we as Americans have has grown exponentially. And this notion of the pursuit of happiness has been turned into what one may call complete, to- complete and total personal autonomy. That is, if you want to be happy, that you need to write your own rules. You need to make your own laws. You need to be able to do whatever you want and whenever you want. And as long as you call that a right, then you are free to do it, despite what the law may say or morality or even what our own DNA tells us. We can create our own reality through the, through the power of our mind, through the power of the will, and that is our right as Americans. And we are told that we need to cling tenaciously to these rights, that if anyone ever wants to take them away, we ought to hold on to them and exercise those rights, despite what harm it may cause to ourselves, or more importantly, what harm it may cause to others. Well, we may debate another time about whether that notion of personal rights is truly an American ideal. But today, I want to ask you the question, is that a biblical notion? And as we turn to our text today in 1 Corinthians 9, looking at least at the title of, uh, in my Bible, of, ahead of chapter 9, where, we, where I read, Paul surrenders his rights, I'm tempted to think that perhaps this notion of exercising your rights no matter what, despite the costs, despite the impact it may have upon others, I'm beginning to think that that is perhaps not a biblical notion. And so as we consider our passage today, perhaps fitting it in the context of the letter might be in order. At first glance, it seems as if the Apostle Paul is on a bit of a tangent. You may recall that in chapter 8, he addressed the issue of meat offered to idols. And now in chapter 9, he begins to address his rights as an apostle, only then in chapter 10 to return to the topic of idolatry. This has puzzled many commentators, and they think, well, perhaps Paul's just getting off on a rabbit trail, and he, he lost his train of thought only to get back on in chapter 10. But when, when you consider how Paul ended his discussion in chapter 8 about the topic of meat offered to idols, we read him saying, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. There we see Paul would willingly forego his uh, willingly forego ever eating meat if it meant that his brother would stumble. And we can almost hear the Corinthians respond to such a statement by saying, well, that's my right. It's my right to be able to eat meat offered to idols, and I'm going to cling to that right despite what impact it may have upon my weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. It's important to keep in mind that Paul, in talking about the Corinthians' right to eat in in the temples, he's not conceding that right. 
uh, rather, this right was their self-proclaimed right that they were claiming. They were saying that they were free to go to the pagan temples and eat meat offered to idols. And perhaps even this right was theirs because of the fact that they were Roman citizens. And yet Paul here in chapter 9 begins to go on a lengthy defense of one of his rights that he has as an apostle, namely to receive financial compensation for preaching the gospel. He goes on this lengthy defense, which takes 14 verses of our reading today, only then to go on to to explain how he forfeits that right for the good of the Corinthians and for the advancement of the gospel. So chapter 9, Paul explains how he has rights that he forfeits for the good of others. And in so doing, he begins to set an example for the Corinthians who were tenaciously clinging to their rights. He sets an example so that by the end of his discussion in chapter 11, verse 1, he could say, follow me as I follow the Lord. Follow my example. And so looking into our passage today, we see the Apostle Paul begin by asking a series of rhetorical questions. A series of questions where the obvious answer is yes. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Clearly the answer to these questions is yes. The Apostle Paul is free. He's free from the law of sin and and death. He's free from the power of Satan. He's He's free from the constraints and the sway of the world of public opinion. He's free from all of those things. In addition to that, he says he's an apostle. This is how he identified himself at the very opening of the letter. An apostle literally means one who is sent out. And an apostle in the New Testament sense is one to whom the Lord Jesus Christ appeared and personally commissioned and sent to proclaim the gospel. That's why Paul says, have I not seen the Lord Jesus? The Lord appearing to him, of course, on the road to Damascus. But as Paul would go on to explain in in, in this letter, being an apostle did not mean that you would live a life of luxury. It didn't mean that you would have fame and, and, uh, and, and make friends and influence people. But rather, being an apostle meant that your life was characterized by suffering, by taking up the cross and following after the Lord. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, For I think that God has, it, has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels, and to men. But Paul nevertheless insists on the fact that he is, in fact, an apostle. And and the Corinthians knew that because he goes on to say, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? You may recall that it was the apostle Paul who first planted the church at Corinth. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. And Paul, in chapter 3, described that work that he initially started there in Corinth, where he says, I planted and Apollos watered, but the Lord gave the increase. And then switching metaphors from agricultural to a building metaphor, he says, like a wise master builder, I laid upon the foundation of Christ Jesus to build this church. And so he speaks of the Corinthians as his own workmanship in the Lord as an apostle. They only had to look to themselves as proof for the fact that Paul was, in fact, an apostle. That's why he could say that they were his seal of apostleship. 
He speaks uh, in a similar manner in 2 Corinthians when he says to them, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And so Paul then launches into his defense, uh, literally his apology, from which we get the word apologetics as he defends himself. It's interesting to note that despite the fact that Paul was an apostle, he was not without his critics. There were certainly those who doubted the fact that Paul was an apostle. But Paul says, look, even if people doubt that I'm an apostle, you at Corinth can't do that because you are proof. You are my seal of apostleship. And yet, nonetheless, he had his critics even within the church that he planted. And so having, uh, having established his identity as an apostle in the first few verses of the chapter, Paul then goes on in verse 4 to ask another series of rhetorical questions detailing his rights as an apostle. So he's established his identity. Now he's going to talk about his rights beginning in verse 4 when he asks, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Here he's referring to what we might call room and board. You see, when these apostles would travel from city to city, they, they would be able to experience the hospitality of the saints. They would be given a place to stay. They would be given food as compensation uh, for the ministry that they had in each and every city. And that's exactly what Paul is referring to when he says, do I not have the right to eat and drink? Another right he discusses uh, is, do I not have the right to take along a believing wife? You see, not only the apostles who would travel, would get uh, this uh, hospitality of the saints. But also, if they were married, they were free to take along their spouse. Now, we know that Paul, as a single man, didn't use this right. And he talked previously in chapter 7 about how it made life easier for him because he could have undivided devotion to the Lord. He could give the entirety of his time to the Lord and the service of the churches and not have to worry about supporting his wife. And yet for those apostles who were married, they had it within their apostolic right to take along their wife and that their wife too would be supported by the churches. We see that the other apostles, uh, Paul doesn't name them by name, but uh, certainly we we are safe to assume that the majority of the other apostles, the 12, as we refer to them, also had had wives or were married, including Cephas, who is... uh, Also, just another name for Peter. We know that Peter was married from the gospel narratives. Jesus healed his mother-in-law, you may recall, in Mark chapter 1. And here we get this other interesting tidbit of information that Peter, in addition to the other apostles, in addition to the brothers of the Lord, which would include men like James and Jude, who wrote these New Testament letters we have, all of these men were married, all of these men traveled from church to church, and they took along with them They're believing wives. And yet Paul then turns in verse 6 when he says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? You may recall Barnabas was Paul's missionary companion, traveling companion on his first missionary journey. And apparently from this, we, we are safe to assume that Barnabas also worked a trade like Paul himself, who was a tent maker, and that Barnabas provided for himself so that he would not have to rely upon the support of the churches. 
And yet to further prove his point, in verse 7, Paul provides examples from everyday life to show that those who work are worthy of receiving their wages. He uses the example of the soldier or the one who plants a vineyard or the farmer who keeps a flock. He says, do not all of these people get some sort of compensation for their labors? And, and certainly, this is, this is clearly patentedly true. This is what, what, what we might call natural law or the light of nature. That's what the Apostle Paul appears, uh, appeals to here when he says, look, look at all of the various trades that we see, whether it's a farmer or a vinter or a soldier, all of, none of them do it at their own expense. They all receive some sort of benefit, rather in pay or in kind, of for their labors. And yet it's interesting that the Apostle Paul not only appeals to what we might call natural law or the light of nature, but then he bolsters that by saying, look, the law of God says the same thing. He he appeals to what we call revelation, the the written scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And yet when when the Apostle Paul appeals to revelation, turning to the law of Moses to support his statement, we may be struck at what, what law from the Old Testament he appeals to. It seems a bit odd and out of place for the Apostle Paul to cite a law having to do with an ox, namely, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, when he's talking about how we as humans need to get paid. And yet, uh, and yet the reason why he does this, and it strikes us as a bit odd because... We don't read, at least we haven't been taught to read, our Bibles in the same way that Paul and the other apostles read their Bibles. You see, the Apostle Paul is doing what was very common in his day and age. He was making an argument from the lesser to the greater. And in looking at this Old Testament law that has to do with an ox, namely that you should not allow or you shouldn't prevent an ox from being able to eat from some of the grain that it is treading from, that is, even an ox should be able to get some benefit from the work it does. If that's true of an ox, how much more true is it us as humans made in the image of God? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. We see uh, rabbis, uh, uh, Jewish rabbis, interpreting the Old Testament law in the very same way that the Apostle Paul is doing it here. He's not getting into wild speculation or analogy. He's just making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If it's true of an ox, how much more true is it of us? We even see Jesus make similar types of argumentation in his Sermon on the Mount. If God cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, how much more you, O you of little faith? And so the Apostle Paul makes this argument. He says, was this written for the ox? Well, clearly not. As Martin Luther says, oxen do not read. (laughs) Clearly, it was written for our sake. Is God only concerned about oxen? Well, certainly he is concerned about all of his creatures, but he's not purely concerned for oxen. Clearly, he's more concerned for us. And so this was written not for the oxen's sake, but for our sake. The whole of scripture was written for our benefit in order to teach us this particular point, the important point that he who uh, that that he who labors should get the, the the pay. The plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope. Whether it's the beginning or the end of the harvest, everyone who's involved in the harvest should be able to reap from the benefits 
And so Paul then goes, it's interesting, he makes an argument from the lesser to the greater, and then he makes an argument from the greater to the lesser. Paul says, if we've sown spiritual things amongst you, how much more should we be able to reap material things from you? If the plowman and thresher enjoy the fruits of their physical labors, how much more should those who plant water and harvest the first fruits of the new creation? If physical labor derives a benefit, how much more should spiritual? And if others receive tangible and financial support from the Corinthians, which clearly they did, Paul says, how much more should Paul and his fellow missionaries? Paul, who planted the church. Paul, who continued to keep tabs on the church, who had these lengthy correspondences with him, who planned to return to them. How much more should Paul be worthy of receiving financial support from this church. And yet having established his rights as an apostle, namely to receive financial compensation from this church at which he labored, in verse the second half of verse 12, Paul now makes clear that he forfeits those rights. He forfeits those rights by not receiving financial compensation from them. We know that when he first came to Corinth from Acts chapter 18, that he worked as a tent maker, laboring together with Priscilla and Aquila, who were of the same trade. He supported himself. He didn't receive financial compensation from the Corinthians. He got support from the churches in in Philippi, but he didn't take money from the churches in Corinth. Why? Well, as he says, because he didn't want to put an obstacle. He did not want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, I think it's fair to ask at this point, how would Paul receiving financial compensation hinder the preaching of the gospel? How would it put an obstacle in, uh, as, as he says? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, Paul didn't want to be a burden upon the churches that he planted. He makes this clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He makes it clear again uh, to the, the churches in Thessalonia when he says, keep in mind that when we were with you, we labored night and day so that we would not be a burden upon you, so that we wouldn't have to take from your money, so that we can constantly give. And then Paul says, and by the way, I'm setting an example for you so that you would get a job and work. Paul, first and foremost, did not want to be a burden upon the newly planted churches. Second of all, I think the Apostle Paul wanted to be free from having to be beholden to anyone. Keep in mind, this is during a day and age in which patronage was was very uh, important. Wealthy people would give money and support to others around them in order that they might serve as their entourage. And we read of these wealthy patrons living in Corinth uh, who would be followed around by, their, uh, by the people that they supported. And, their, and the, the whole day would be taken up following around your patron, doing what they do, and, and supporting them and, and you know, giving, uh, being sort of yes-men to the patron. Clearly, the Apostle Paul did not want to be in, put in that situation. He didn't want to receive money from somebody only to think that it was a quid pro quo and that he would have to somehow return the favor to this person. And so perhaps with those two things in mind, not wanting to be a burden and not wanting to be beholden to any individuals within the church, Paul refused to receive financial compensation so as not to put an obstacle in the preaching of the gospel. 
And so Paul's clearly made his point. He's proven that he's an apostle. He's proven that he has rights as an apostle. And then he says, I don't use those rights for the sake of the gospel. But it's interesting that in verse 13, he now returns to another. Uh, uh, in verse 13, he returns to, his, uh, to further his argumentation. And he provides another example of people laboring and deriving a benefit from their labors. And we might say, well, this is odd. Paul, haven't you proven your point? Why are you now returning to citing another example? And here, the example in verse 13, is the Levitical priests who would serve in the Old Testament temple. Those Levitical priests would be able to eat from the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. They had fellowship, a share in the sacrificial offerings. Well, why is it that Paul returns to another example, having already proven his point? I think it's important to notice here that with this example, the Apostle Apostle Paul transfers from what we might call the secular realm, where we see soldiers and farmers and, and, and inventors, to what we might call the sacred realm where he talks about the priests of the Old Testament and how it is that they derived benefits from their priestly service. And when we consider what the priests would derive is they would be able to be participants in the altar, we see that they receive not only a physical benefit, that is having food and bread from the, the sacrifices offered, but also a spiritual benefit is they communed together with the Lord. We'll see in chapter 10 when the Apostle Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper and how it is that we feed upon the real presence of Christ and derive a spiritual blessing from the the cup and and the bread. He cites, again, the Old Testament priests who had a koinonia, a fellowship, a communion with the Lord as they fed from the meat of the, of the offering. And we see this, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, as the Lord gives the law, the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance in Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So we see here, uh, that what they get is not only the, the meat and bread offered in the, on the altar, but also they get the Lord himself as their inheritance, as they feed upon that holy food that is given only to them. And so moving from an observation about the Levitical priests back to a direct command, in this case, it's not a, com- a command from the Mosaic law, but it's a command from our Lord Jesus Christ From his earthly teaching, the Apostle Paul says that's why, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Paul undoubtedly is referring to what we read in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says a laborer deserves his wages, citing the the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. But the, the, the principle that we get here is those who preach the gospel should get their living by the gospel, literally should live from the gospel, I think highlights why Paul referred to the Old Testament priests. You see, like the Old Testament priests, who not only got a physical benefit, but also a spiritual benefit, 
New Covenant ministers derive not only material benefits, but also the spiritual benefits in laboring in the gospel. And it's that latter benefit that the Apostle Paul was exclusively concerned with. As Paul will say later in this chapter, in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul was not concerned about money. He was not concerned about material support. He was perfectly happy to work for himself and provide for himself so that he, can, he could benefit entirely from the spiritual aspect of preaching the gospel. And we see how emotionally he, he involved he is in this, how strongly he felt about it in verse 14, uh, uh, when he, or in verse 15, when he says, I would rather die. I would rather die. And it's interesting here, we see the Apostle Paul's emotion, especially in the Greek, uh, uh, when, when he goes on to say, I would rather die, the sentence in Greek just breaks off. He doesn't even finish his thought. We see how emotional he is, even as he's transmit or as he's uh, dictating this letter. He doesn't even finish his thought. But we might say, well, wait a minute, Paul, you're getting a bit dramatic here. You're saying you'd rather die? You'd rather die than have anyone deprive you of your, of your ground for boasting? Well, I think the Apostle Paul is not just being dramatic, but in saying that he would rather die than receive a living wage from preaching the gospel, he's making a deeper theological point. And I think the point is this, that he dies in order to live. As an apostle, he dies, as he says in chapter 15, I die daily, taking up my cross, in order to live. And he says he would rather do this than have anyone, uh, in verse 15, for anyone to deprive me or to make void or empty my ground for boasting. It's important to note here that the Apostle Paul is not being prideful. He doesn't have a, a sense of false humility where he says, well, you know, I uh, labor. I don't take money from the churches. The other apostles do. He's not being prideful here. When he speaks about boasting, he's being ironic. He's not contradicting what he said uh, back in chapter one, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But rather, we need to appreciate the rich irony as he employs this word for boasting but, but when we see what he's boasting in, you see, while others boasted of the material success and their ability to influence others, think of those patrons walking around Corinth, the Apostle Paul boasted in the cross of Christ, which ultimately is the wisdom and power of God. In verse 16, as Paul makes clear, he doesn't boast in the fact that he preaches the gospel. After all, he's constrained to do that. He has to do that. He can't help it. As he goes on to say, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Echoing the words of the Old Testament prophets before him, like Isaiah or Jeremiah, the Apostle Paul proclaims, uh, pronounces condemnation upon himself. This message of woe and condemnation if he doesn't preach the gospel. It's interesting that while the uh, Old Testament prophet Jeremiah uh, said, woe is me, 
as he lamented the sufferings that came upon him as a result of his faithful preaching during the destruction of Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul doesn't lament his sufferings, but rather he rejoices in his sufferings. He doesn't boast in his strength, but he boasts in his weakness, which came as a result of the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And here I think we see a big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, they would lament their sufferings because it meant that God's judgment was coming upon them, as as in the days of Jeremiah. But in the New Testament, we rejoice in our sufferings because we have been justified already. The sufferings we experience are not uh, not, uh, God's wrath coming upon us, but rather his fatherly chastisement conforming us into the image of his son. It's not a time of tearing down, it's a time of building up. And so that's why the Apostle Paul could say, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel despite what may come. And so in verse 17, getting back into the realm of earthly labors, the Apostle Paul reminds his readers that he is a steward of the mysteries of God, as he said back in chapter 4. Now, here's the difference that we need to keep in mind when the Apostle Paul refers to himself as a steward. Unlike the soldier, unlike the farmer, unlike the venter, a steward is one who is entrusted with the care and maintenance and management of something that ultimately does not belong to them. A steward is one who labors not for their own benefits, but rather for the benefit of their master. And so as a faithful steward, the Apostle Paul was not seeking to please men, but God, as he says in chapter 4. And so the Apostle Paul, as a faithful steward, was not uh, seeking to obtain material reward, which ultimately perishes, but rather he was laboring for the reward which is imperishable, as he'll say later in the chapter. Strive towards the reward which is imperishable. And that's ultimately what he was doing. And so he asks in verse 18, then what is my reward? If he's not getting financial compensation, what does he get? Well, his reward, quote unquote reward here, is that he was able to present the gospel free of charge in order to highlight the free grace of God given in Christ Jesus. There was something particularly satisfying to the Apostle Paul to be able to present the gospel completely free of charge. And he saw in that a picture of the free grace of God that is given to us in Christ. And so concluding our passage today, we just we look at uh, verse 19 where he says, although I am free from all, returning to what he said back in verse 1, am I not free? He goes, even though I'm free... I am willingly making myself a slave to all so that I may win more to Christ for the benefit of the gospel. Following the example of his Lord who came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many, the Apostle Paul surrendered his rights for the good of others and the advancement of the gospel. And as he says in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am am of Christ. May God give us all the grace to surrender our rights for the good of those around us and to use our gifts for the advancement of his kingdom. Amen? Let's give thanks.
Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you once again that he who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. For in the fullness of time, you were born of woman and born under the law to live a life of suffering and obedience on our behalf so that you may obtain for us or obtain for yourself a people. And you have given us your spirit, O Lord, and invited us now to take up our cross and to, uh, to, to deny ourselves as we follow after you. Help us to do that even this week, O Lord. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.